Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. It is one of the many odd quirks of the various overlapping layers of government authority and oversight. Boston residents are probably more reliant on the MBTA than anyone in the state, yet Boston city government has no formal say in the operation of the T. It's been an easy way for city officials to pass the buck over the years about problems with the T, of which there have been a fair share in recent times. But some of them are stepping up and speaking out on transit issues. One of the loudest voices has been that of Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu. And she is here with me and my colleague Bruce Mull for today's installment of the podcast. Uh, Michelle Wu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So y- you have been, uh, as I said, uh, you know, speaking out on a lot of transit and T issues. But, you know, I'd love to hear uh, one thing that's just interesting to hear from people is, is their own use of the T. You know, how, sometimes that's sort of the, the people's way into these issues is really their everyday experience. So, so do, do you use the T regularly? And what's, what's that been like for you? Yeah, this has become really the central issue that I've been advocating on. And I came to it a little bit later in my tenure on the council. I'm now five years in. And for the first two years, I was living in the South End. And when you're that close to downtown, you really don't need to think about transportation that much. You can pretty much walk to downtown, Chinatown, get around, tons of restaurants right around. And it was really only until my family and I moved to Roslindale about two and a half years ago now that transportation became front and center in my life and figuring out every day how do we get from Roslindale to work, to the doctor's appointments, to anywhere that we needed to go, it was at least a you know, 30 to 45 minute planning exercise. And Roslindale is one of those neighborhoods that is uniquely disconnected from transit. They're in the Orange Line ends at Forest Hills, and it's a mix of buses that are congested and stressful, or the commuter rail, which is extremely expensive and doesn't come that often. So most days I'll try to get dropped off by my husband at Forest Hills, and then I take the double stroller with both my sons on the orange line. Wow. We, <laughs> we get out at uh, State Street. I know every elevator in the system because of them in the stroller. If they're and, working, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, on the way home, we'll either get on at Haymarket, sometimes change to commuter rail at Back Bay. But it's a mix of bus, tea, and commuter rail every single day. Mm-hmm. So that's your challenge. Um, I'm just sort of curious, how would you grade the tea as, as a user and as a policymaker, how, how do you rate it? B minus, C plus. I think, um, you know, I love public transportation. I, I think it's so wonderful that uh, there is a way for us to get from Roslindale to downtown via, you know, not a, a, a vehicle, uh, a, you know, your own car. But the experience is often unpredictable. It's extremely crowded. Even in the last year, you know, two years, it's gotten, my perception is that it's gotten worse. And every time I tweet about the tea, immediately, there's a whole crowd of folks out there saying, we want this to be better. We're very invested in public transit, but um, the, the service isn't where it needs to be. And you've, uh, you know, you've recently pointed out that, you know, local communities make a contribution to the tea. It's not a huge necessarily part of their budget, but it's, you know, it can be a sizable amount from communities. And in fact, Boston, uh, far and away, is the biggest, uh, you know, local contributor to the tea. And, and is that, I guess you sort of feel like that at least gives you kind of, you know, 
some some say at the table, or it ought to, it ought to give a say. Absolutely, and it, it is the third largest revenue source for the T's operating budget. So, you know, behind the fraction of the sales tax and behind revenues from ticket prices, local assessments make up a big chunk of of how the T operates. Mm-hmm. Boston uh, accounts for more than half of that local assessment. It's what 80, 80 some million. Eighty five point eight million dollars in mm-hmm. this fiscal year, and you know. For us at the city level, that is a big chunk of what we need as we're thinking about all the trade-offs with schools and parks and and public you know public safety. So we absolutely should have more of a say. You know, I'm not saying that immediately we pull all the money out because we depend on the team more than any other community. However, there should be a two-way dialogue about what's working and what needs to improve. And has this you know has city government been too quiet in general on the T? You know, in recent years and even historically and. You know, I kind of characterized them, you know, they've been kind of a bystander, and, and because of the configuration of authorities, it's been, you know, easy to kind of point the finger at Beacon Hill or, you know, the T as an independent authority. Yeah, the, the, the structure of it has made it so that basically any political entity has been insulated from accountability. And that goes for city government and it goes for state government, the legislature and the administration. Right, although, of course this change to the T control board has been a has been a shift in that and brought sort of you know a lot more of the accountability directly under the under the administration yes although it's still a, a separate board that you know has its own they're appointed by the governor and and sort of you know work closely with the secretary but right. it is still a separate group of people as right. opposed to an agency directly under government so you know, the, on the council side, we have been seeing transportation emerge, I think, as it's become more urgent for our constituents. Mm-hmm. There's now an official committee on planning, development, and transportation that I chair, which links the idea that we, as we're building more, as we're bringing more people to Boston, we need to think about how they're going to get around the city, too. So the, the uh, you, you said you give the T a C plus, B minus, and, and it's, you, you're, you're stru- I'm struggling with this a little bit myself. You, you're having a problem with the way it's sort of overseen, you know, it's a separate entity. I'm just sort of curious, how would you like to see it changed? Or would you like, do you think Boston deserves a seat on the control board? Or you don't see too many city officials showing up at control board meetings to, you know, there is a public comment period there. Um, what do you, what would you like to see? And do you think transit needs more revenue to, to, to does the T need more revenue to make itself work better? In my dream world, um, in my, the, I think the absolute ideal would be if we found a way to make public transportation free for residents. And, you know, there are costs to collecting fares. Certainly we need to have the revenues to make the system work and uh, be improving it and all of that. Uh, but that's something that if we're talking about economic mobility, if we're talking about racial equity, if we're talking about fighting climate change, getting folks to utilize public transportation more and increasing ridership on a system that is you know, headed towards being electric and um, moving more people more efficiently is what we should be putting all of our energy towards. Again, in my dream world in terms of jurisdiction and oversight, Boston would have direct oversight over the portion of the service that is within our our area. So the subway and the bus system, if it were 
more closely linked to city authority, I believe we'd be more accountable and we'd also have um, the ability to make things move faster. It makes sense when there's a commuter rail system that reaches across the state to have a larger span and you know uh, there are many, many communities involved in that. But when we compare Boston's structure to other cities, you have a whole lot more flexibility, agility, and uh, a, a more holistic view if the city is more directly, you know, the folks who are most directly impacted and benefit from the service have a say in how it's run and how the money is used. Um, I give it that grade because, one, I think even if we're looking at just how the service is run now, if we don't change any of the stops and don't think about expansion, the frequency, the crowdedness, you know, is enough to tick down the grade a little bit. But beyond that, we should absolutely be thinking about how to increase revenues to get to that vision of a transportation system that will support our region's growth. Massachusetts and Boston are booming right now. It, it, you know, there are companies wanting to come here, people wanting to move here. Um, a better city, that the organization focused on sort of downtown waterfront area businesses. Uh, their report a few years ago said that the number of the population growth in greater Boston in the, in the inner city, sort of within 128, is, is projected to grow by 17.5%. That is, I brought the numbers with me, another 80,000 cars and trucks on the road, another 14,000 MBTA commuters per day. We can't handle that capacity increase right now. We're already bursting at the seams. That's going to take big picture, long-term planning and financing. And in terms of the financing, uh, I mean, I sort of take this sort of ideal vision where, where you know, the system might be free. Obviously, it's, it's ultimately not free. It's got to be paid for. Exactly. So I, I wonder about um, one idea that has been kicking around and that uh, has had a hard time getting traction here, but is actually used, you know, almost universally across the country is allowing for sort of a local option uh, uh, tax to fund uh, transit regionally. And, and we have not, uh, we've not done that. There's been, the Senate has in the past passed that measure. That's about as far as it's gone. I mean, would you favor something like that where we could ask Boston or the greater Boston area communities whether they'd be willing to, uh, you know, be taxed uh, in order to support the T and, and maybe provide the, the revenue that, that a lot of advocates say uh, it needs to really to, to, to be, uh, you know, up to snuff? I think we should have everything on the table. I mean, in some ways, Boston is already being taxed, $85.8 million, and that's our right. that's more than any other community pays. Uh, you know, we have a, a multiplier greater than any other community, but we should be exploring every re revenue source. That, you know, that's why I've been pushing a review of resident parking at the local level. That's been hugely controversial. I've gotten lots of feedback on all sides. But right now, Boston gives out resident parking stickers for our drivers, for free with no limit to how many each household should can have. That leads to a situation where in the north end, for example, there are three times as many permits issued as there are spot resident parking spots. So it's really no more than a permit to hunt for a spot. Um, that increases congestion. You know, some estimated 30% of traffic downtown can be attributed to people circling to find a parking spot. And we're also missing out on that potential revenue source to fund local infrastructure, like cycling infrastructure, like you know more of improving our sidewalks and repainting the crosswalks, making sure there's there's safe, um, accessible transit options everywhere. Uh, we should also be pushing hard on talking about the congestion, uh, or we're calling it smarter tolling, uh, mm -hmm. but essentially congestion pricing. The uh, 
the potential there for us to not just find a revenue source, but really truly improve people's experience driving is is huge. Uh, the I think in, in last year or the year before, a report found that the average commuter in the greater Boston area spends almost two and a half days of every year sitting in traffic. So that is, you know, some 57, 58 hours where you're not even moving <laughs> in your car, you're just sitting there. And that is directly linked to our public transportation options and how comprehensive they are. Do you, um, do you want to, when you say Boston should have more control over, I guess, what goes on within its borders? Because the T is, as you are well aware, uh, it runs across municipal borders quite often. There is a significant amount of traffic within Boston, but there is some logic to having an entity that's not, you know, it's not controlled by individual communities. Um, And Boston actually doesn't have a great reputation as being very innovative on transportation. So I'm a little I'm a little concerned about this idea of Boston needs to gain more control over how the T operates. Maybe that I'm catching you wrong, but is that what you mean? Look, we're, I mean, if we're talking about uh, an ideal world in which we could move things to the greatest degree with the quickest possible speed, local control is in some ways always best. Uh, there are, you know, there's always trade-offs. And you're right that when we shrink things down to the most local level, we have to balance those very local factions or interests and sometimes broadening it to a larger uh, sphere of jurisdiction means that more people will have a say and there'll be more balanced decision making. But as we look at the needs here in our transportation system, um, it there's a direct link between jurisdiction and accountability. And that that's what I see across many different sectors. Um, do we have a reputation in Boston for ignoring transportation? I'm not sure. I mean, I've, I've been on the council now. As I said, this is my third term. And I think we have been talking about transit since day one on the council, in in my experience, pushing for late night tea, pushing for uh, fairness for the um, MBTA workers, pushing on commuter rail, fair equity, uh, talking about the T's assessment, thinking about cycling infrastructure, walking infrastructure, and how to connect all of that with the MBTA. It's very much front and center in, in terms of what our constituents care about. And more and more, we're seeing action on that from the city. Um, this spring, there will be the first official pilot of a dedicated bus lane on Washington Street running from uh, Rosendale Square to Forest Hills. They had tested that out as an operational pilot for two separate days um, a few months ago, and it went great. That is one of the most congested corridors in terms of number of commuters on the road and the uh, scale of delays that the buses usually experience going through there because there are so many routes going through that one choke point. So if we're able to innovate at the city level, doing something that's entirely within our control, which is separating out a lane, saying we're going to actually not allow parking uh, during rush hour and use this lane solely for bikes, for buses, and for school buses, we are making a decision municipally about uh, a, a public transportation innovation that will directly improve people's experiences. You are, except my understanding is that uh, the T, this is an example where the T has to work with a local community. The T would have liked to have gone to a dedicated bus lane a long time ago, 
But as you say, there's a long process in Boston to try and get this. Um, I think months ago, the T would have done this. Oh, maybe even years ago. Years I mean, ago. there's a the T has they have a report of I forget how many inter um, corridors. Maybe it's about a dozen corridors they've identified within Boston and the surrounding area that they would love to see a dedicated bus lane on. And my role, I'm going to push the city as hard as I'm pushing the T uh, to make those innovations happen. The way that things work in Boston, uh, I think, you know, across the spectrum in government, but particularly in Boston, people want to see demonstrated success. And oftentimes pilots are a good way to go because if we're asking neighbors, small business owners, residents to give up that on-street parking in exchange for a dedicated bus lane that will you know, benefit the larger community, they need to trust that one, it will actually result in better transit, two, that will manage the project right and get it done, uh, and the best way to show that is to earn their trust and, and do the pilot, see if it works, prove that uh, government can manage this with this partnership of city and MBTA, and then expand from there. Um, I mean, sort of on this theme of sort of the city's role, do you think, has the mayor, you know, been out front enough in leading on transit stuff and issues with the T performance, in your view? The mayor has to work very closely with a whole bunch of different agencies and levels of government. I've had numerous conversations with him about transportation in general and, you know, everything from cycling and you know going on a bike ride together to the commuter You've gone for a issue. bike ride? Yeah, uh, we have we are we have com- <laughs> we've decided that we're going to at some point. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but well, let it, let uh, us know. We'll be between there. Between my pregnancies and and babies and everything else it's been hard to schedule. Um, but I I know that he clearly sees a link between people's ability to get around the city and to connect to jobs as being central to our economic strength. Uh, so I know it's a priority. I think we need to constantly push each other to talk about the specifics and what roadblocks need to be taken out of the way to, to see action. So uh, there's a, a long dilemma, and I sort of hear it in, in some of your answers about what to do with the T. Some people, uh, sort of the prevailing view is it needs to get its house in order before launching into big new projects. And others just can't stop. They want to. They want to. They see a lot of need and want to expand, like regional rail um, and a lot of other projects. Where do you come down on that spectrum? It sort of sounds like you're you're seeing the need and want to move in that direction. And the T, I think it's pretty clear, ha- is is racing to catch up with what it can, what it can do right now. It's a, it's a it's a pretty big issue about how you approach the T. How, how do you see it? We need a vision that goes beyond maintenance and getting to the state of good repair. Certainly, our trains have to be functional. Certainly, you know, the elevators need to be maintained and all of those little things that require day-to-day management and resources just to, to maintain that baseline must happen. But people have to be able to trust that the transit system is going to work for them to meet their needs and see that we're eventually going to support the growth of this region. There's a balance in that I don't think we're hitting right now. You mentioned the regional rail plans, and you know, yes, that does involve some expansion and infrastructure costs, but it is a, a, a very modest proposal in the scale of 
what could happen. You know, it's not about um, drastically expand. You know, adding, digging more uh, subway space and tunnels and um, and this and that. It's about switching out the size and um, uh, frequency of trains that are running on the existing infrastructure. There need to be some changes to to move from our current engines, the larger um, trains, to these electric um, multiple units. But using the same track that's been laid and the same sort of footprint of the infrastructure, we could be squeezing a lot more service that is meeting the needs of, would better meet the needs of residents with what we have already. Um, there are you know, some small conversions that, that Transit Matters Regional Rail Plan does mention that you know, there are one step of ambition beyond that, for example, changing the Needham line on the commuter rail to um, a- an extension of the Orange line. Again, you don't need to necessarily dig more or, or build more, but it would involve conversion of tracks, et cetera. Uh, but we have to weigh each of those costs against what the benefit would be to the number of people that would then dramatically be served better uh, and the potential ridership gains that we would see from people then choosing to park, keep their cars parked at home and, and take the T instead. Uh, my fight on the commuter rail fare equity issue has been precisely that. The neighborhoods in Boston that are not served by subway and that are currently zoned to be um, a much more expensive commuter rail fare to get downtown, it's not as simple as the T would lose revenue if we drop the prices down to an equitable fare. In fact, there are many people who are not dry, who are not taking the T at all, neither the bus nor the commuter rail, who would abandon their cars and get on the commuter rail if the fare were more reasonable. So you think they sort of make up in volume what they lose in, in a per ticket price? Yeah, I'm working with a coalition to try to put some numbers behind that. It's complicated and hard to predict, right, uh, but right. we've been asking, you know, we have over 500 respondents so far of people saying, this is how, this is where I live. I'm close to this commuter rail stop. Here's how many times a month I take the commuter rail now. Here's how many times a month I would take it if the fare were dropped down to the fare that the rest of Boston pays. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you said in your dream world, there would be no fares on the T. Um, now, is that just sort of uh, you're throwing that out there, or is that something you'd actually like to see? I think we all need to throw things out there that we'd like to see, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you're not saying that's a, as a policymaker, that's not something you'd push for. With the plan to roll in um, what's called AFC 2.0, the automatic fare collection and the new technology, the T will have much more flexibility in administering fares. That means that we could explore whether it makes sense to have a more of a distance-based system, whether it makes sense to offer discounted rates for certain groups of people in a more efficient way than happens now, um, or if it makes sense to offer free days on the T that other systems with this similar AFC 2.0 type collection do offer now, um, or if it or certain lines might make sense. Uh, if we know that there's a part of the system that is utilized by a vast majority of residents who are low-income residents, and we see the racial inequities of our region kind of projected onto transportation here. For example, you know, every morning I can either take the commuter rail, it is not at all reflective of the diversity of my neighborhood or the city, or take the bus, which is the complete opposite, but again, uh, crowded, unpredictable. We are making that choice with the fare structure. Uh, so. 
if there's a bus line, for example, where we know that it serves a vast majority of neighborhoods and residents who are low income, who would benefit from a fare that would be discounted, at what point does it become not even worth it to be tracking who is paying and, and having all the technology on the back end of uh, collecting fares and counting fares and, and tracking all that down. Uh, if we want the T to be a tool that is used for economic mobility in our city, that's something I think should very much be on the table. Hmm. And I was just going to circle back briefly to the, your talk about the congestion tolling or resident parking stickers that, that uh, it would bring in revenue, but it seems like you're also saying we need to be more aggressive about taking measures that would um, create incentives uh, or, I guess, disincentives for, for more auto travel or, or even car ownership in some congested neighborhoods. I mean, that's been a battle also that plays out in, in zoning uh, decisions and approval for new development. You know, how many off-street parking spots per unit should there be? And, and, and you know, with people saying this sort of uh, long-standing view that, you know, there should be like two spots for every housing unit is really sort of a 1950s view and we need to have a different a different attitude. I mean, are you, uh, so is it fair to say you really are, you, you're trying to, uh, you know, sort of put cars sort of in their place in a way, I guess, in, in the in the city's future, and that you think that's that's sort of how we have to think about things going forward. It's more about shifting people's incentives to more accurately reflect what the costs of their behavior is. Mm-hmm. We know that for every mile that is commuted in a car that's a single occupancy vehicle that is gasoline-powered, we're seeing wear and tear in our roads. We're seeing... Uh, pollution from the particulates coming out of the emissions, and we're seeing an increase in traffic and congestion. When you shift that onto a bicycle, for example, that has much less wear and tear on the roads, that actually contributes to public health because folks are getting exercise and it's not uh, adding to the emissions, that is a dramatic change added up person by person by person. Um, Even if we're talking about moving people from single occupancy vehicles to buses, the efficiency of doing that, I think, merits signal prioritization so that the stoplights would create um, more of a priority for buses that they sense coming versus other other vehicles. So, yes, we have to examine our behavior as a society. You know, if we think about the just from the, you know, for, put aside the economic mobility argument, which is really front and center to everything we're talking about, housing, education, uh, et cetera, at city government, but just think about the climate change impacts There have been estimates that we have about three years left to really affect climate change and whether our world will be habitable by future generations. Just about three years to to make sure that the fossil fuel emissions go below a certain level. That requires global cooperation. So I'm not saying that the city of Boston is going to single-handedly do this. However, we need to be part of that effort, and we need to make sure that uh, everything from the city fleet being... Um, electric or hybrid to making way for uh, electric vehicle infrastructure to allowing folks to make decisions that are not keeping them in cars. Because it's not even just about punishing drivers or, you know, quote unquote, car people. I know many folks who don't want to drive and don't want to be car people, but because of where they live and because of the lack of affordable, safe transportation options other than driving, that's what they have to do. 
Um, what do you think about ride-hailing apps? They've become very popular. They've added to congestion here in Boston, even though no one really knows how extensively. And the city and state officials sort of seem to me like, hey, this is something that's popular with consumers, and we're not going to mess with that too much. What, what's, your, what's your attitude? We are seeing many vehicles coming in from outside the city, certainly and sometimes even outside the state, every morning as the you know Uber and Lyft and, and the other um, rideshare apps are turned on. And they're even moving beyond just picking people up to making deliveries and you know food purchases and, and things like that. So some of the downtown buildings um, we've heard from the folks who you know, are in the lobbies and a staff there who say it can be upwards of 70 deliveries a day from different types of things, packages being dropped off, et cetera. So it's sort of, I'm framing it as technology as a whole. People expect to be able to get where they want to get, get things delivered to them instantaneously. That will only continue to happen. We, we can't expect um, people to give up that freedom and flexibility. But I think the question for government is, are we creating the right incentives? Are we recouping costs in a way that is in line with thinking about the public good? Um, Rideshare in general is about road usage now, but very shortly will also be about autonomous vehicles and what happens to all the jobs that are associated with driving right now. Are those vehicles going to be electric? Are those vehicles going to be single occupancy or, you know, zero? Will they be sent around the city without anyone in them as they're uh, you know, as their rider gets dropped off to run an errand at the grocery store, can they send that car to circle the block a few times, creating more traffic, creating more congestion, or are they charged a fee for when that vehicle is vacant, incentivizing parking or, or even ride share uh, or carpooling of electric uh, autonomous vehicles? There's a lot we have to figure out in terms of that, that technology. And uh, again, I think the window is shorter than most folks realize or um, would predict right now, but... We need to we need to make sure that we're um, proactive in addressing all of these issues. Uh, well, I, I just want to quickly get your take on one topic, the transit topic uh, du jour, which would be the gondola. And uh, and, and uh, I actually read this morning the Dorchester Reporter had an editorial, sort of lamenting the fact that suddenly there's all this gondola talk, and they were saying contrasting that with the difficulty of getting uh, a pilot program going on the Fairmount line to have sort of rapid uh, train service there that would serve a huge swath of the city that has been sort of like you describe other parts of the city in Rosendale, really kind of transit, a transit desert in terms of uh, anything other than bus service. Uh, that's how they frame it. But, so what's your take about uh, us zipping people along through the sky <laughs> and the seaport? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm lucky we're on radio so people didn't see my eye roll <laughs> in the question. Oh, maybe we should describe <laughs> it for them. Um, you know, I... Uh, to me, this feels like uh, uh, something that people are grasping at straws over. It would it would require public investment at some point. That is undeniable. Even if the proponents right now are saying that it would be privately funded, it's essentially saying we have a huge problem with traffic and congestion. Let's figure out a way to fly some people over it and ignore it rather than actually addressing the problem. We would through much cheaper means, be able to move people just through the seaport much faster and more efficiently with dedicated bus lanes on Summer Street, um, with more cycling infrastructure, separated lanes. And 
yes, if we had that amount of money available, I would love to see it plugged into half a dozen other projects. Uh, think about the potential to improve transit access by getting an inner harbor ferry actually up and running. I know the folks at Boston Harbor now have been working on this for a long time, uh, but as we're seeing Charlestown become more and more congested and trapped with casino development, with Assembly Square, with the North Washington Bridge uh, being worked on, you know, construction happening there, those residents, would, I mean, people are desperate for a, a way out of the neighborhood that ferry access would, would very quickly solve. Um, so how can we think about making creating options that are, one, affordable to everyone, and two, um, reliable and safe? I, I, I think there are, I have a whole list of things I would rather get done first before we go to gondolas. All right, great. Well, uh, I think that'll do it, and I, I want to thank you, uh, City Councilor Michelle Wu, for coming in and talking to us on the podcast. It's my been pleasure. great. Thank you. And uh, for my colleague Bruce Mall, I'm Michael Jonas at Commonwealth Magazine. You have been listening to another installment of the podcast. You can listen to us every week. You can subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.